Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Teresa Chan, and you're probably knowing me by now because you've checked out this podcast. You're hearing my voice again, and I'm super excited to introduce you one of my heroes. Sheroes? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Karis Massarella is here with me today, uh, and we've been trying to get Karis since we started the podcast many, many months ago now. So she's definitely been someone that we've tried to get a headliner on, uh, but she is a super busy lady, so um, definitely definitely took a little while to get her. Um, So Karis, can I uh, get you to say hello to everyone? Sure. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me today, Teresa. Karis is kind of famous. She has a couple of TEDx talks um, and has been heralded by many groups as being a groundbreaker and a smasher of silos and, and collaborative work. Karis, can you tell us a little bit about all the work that you've done Kind sure. of like a one-liner about what, you, what, what you're all about. Sure. So about uh, 10 years ago, I recognized that there was a huge healthcare disparity uh, in access to healthcare for transgender people. And so my ultimate goal was to make healthcare accessible to transgender people, but at the same time, you know, provide high quality healthcare to transgender people. And so we started this clinic about 10 years ago and in a very unusual place, many people have thought, which is at um, Quest Community Health Center in St. Catharines. And since that time, our team has expanded and we take care now of over 1,000 patients. And uh, it's myself, another emergency physician, ironically, uh, Dr. Tim Sainamon, who works there, and also our nurse practitioner, Nazila Azizi. So it's really grown quite tremendously in the last, uh, in the last 10 years. Wow, that's just simply amazing. I mean, I think you identified a need, you headed into it. Obviously, we'll go into a little bit of backstory, so not all listeners are going to know your backstory to understand what motivated you. But I've just been such in awe of what you've done there because it's it's just without that space so many patients would be without the kind of healthcare high quality healthcare that they need so thank you so much for doing that and thank you on behalf of all our you know emerge colleagues who have referred to you and i'm sure there's been others obviously that have as well and now i guess the quest program now takes the transgender program at quest i mean takes self-referrals to you you're saying right yeah, again, I think it's a goal of making it as barrier free as possible for lots of different reasons. One is that, um, unfortunately, when some patients, clients tell their doctors that they're transgender, they get a very negative reaction. And of course, the knee jerk reaction is to refer you to a psychiatrist because, you know, there's something wrong with you. And from a mental health perspective, and so, of course, this is what led to a lot of the pathologization of trans identity. And of course, I always ask a simple question is whose identity is an illness? And so to state that somebody's identity is an illness is incredibly harmful. And so it has led to a lot of mistrust from the transgender community specifically around accessing healthcare and healthcare providers. 
So one of the things that we're trying to do is to, you know, re regain that trust and to create a safe space for transgender people to access, you know, high quality gender affirming healthcare. Amazing. So I guess some of our listeners might not know you as well as I do. Um, mm -hmm. I remember, I, I'll, I'll add our story uh, later on, but can you tell us a little bit about where the passion for transgendered health comes from? Sure. I think like most things or a lot of things in medicine, passion comes from personal experience or, you know, either with yourself or somebody close to you. And so for me, you know, I started out pretty normally graduated from Western University back in the 20th century, um, graduated and then went on to a couple of years of family medicine, locum, uh, eMERGE work, and then decided that if I was going to work eMERGE, I probably should get some proper training, you know. And um, so then I actually uh, got into the McMaster University eMERGE program. And back then, there were a grand total of two residents in the entire five-year program, uh, myself and another doctor, Ian Mitchell. And so it was a really intimate program. But then I graduated from, you know, the FRCPC emergency program here at Mac. And then again, I was the first ever person to stay in the city who had, who had a, you know, a residency education in FRCPC medicine from McMaster. And then, you know, sort of went on to have a very typical career. I uh, was chief of the emergency department at the hospital I still work at, St. Joe's. I was also program director of the Royal College program for three years, president of the medical staff. So it was sort of a very sort of typical career that you might see. But I'm not sure that's typical because all of those things are pretty groundbreaking already. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but, 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 yeah, but at the same time, my whole life, I had actually personally experienced gender dysphoria. It was something that I had, you know, really become aware of when I was quite young, probably around the age of five or six. And so, you know, through my whole life, I experienced this, this feeling and I'll plug a few shows that I'm on just to yeah, if people really want to go my background, they certainly can. So having, you know, dealt with gender dysphoria my whole life, there was a sort of this one defining moment where I felt that for me, in order to quote unquote, save my life was to transition. So I did the incredibly smart thing of transitioning at a Catholic teaching hospital uh, in, uh, in Hamilton, which, you know, you think to yourself, oh, that, that should go well. No, but it's funny. I actually fully expected it to be disastrous in the sense that, you know, they'd be kind to me, but they'd sort of say, well, you know, you can't really work here anymore, which of course has all sorts of human rights implications, but nonetheless, I wasn't going to make waves about that. Yeah. But I actually, not only did I find support, I found support, not just amongst, you know, administration or people who you'd expect to, you know, find it from to some extent, but also from all my colleagues, hmm. the doctors I worked in the emergency department and the larger hospital staff as a whole, including many sort of traditional, what you'd call white cisgender male surgeons, um, you know, who you would think would maybe not have this positive reaction, but certainly were incredibly supportive. And in fact, I went on to become the first, you know, transgender person ever to be president of a large teaching hospital medical staff association. So, you know, and I was actually voted in by my colleagues. So I think that was sort of uh, really important for me personally. Mm -hmm. and so again, you know, when you looked at surveys of transgender people, transgender people always talk about is lack of access to healthcare. And we also know from evidence that people are at high risk, highest risk for self-harm in the community that's already at high risk for self-harm in the time between they decide to transition and accessing healthcare. So I thought, you know, I have all this privilege and power that maybe I could do something about this. So it was sort of a fortuitous uh, series of events that led me to Quest with a board and an administration that was really committed to LGBTQ health and in particular trans health. And so they allowed me essentially to start a program. And, you know, we started very small, never advertised or talked about it. But again, over the years, we've grown to, you know, a really large organization of about, you know, or sorry, patient population of about, you know, over a thousand people. So it, it's, it's a nice feeling to be able to do that. 
Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And yes, um, do you want to tell us which of the shows, if people want to hear your story? Which... Yes, yeah, so um, I've actually done quite a lot of media and television. As Teresa mentioned, I've done the two uh, TEDx talks. One was on the depathologization of trans identity, which is about that exact idea that being transgender is an illness. And then the second one was a false narrative of deception, which again is this idea that somehow if you're transgender, you're deceptive. And of course, my argument is the exact opposite. You're probably the least deceptive person in the world because you're being very true to yourself. Yeah. And then I've done uh, a number of documentaries and recently just finished a TV series and another documentary, which you can see on Amazon Prime. Mm. Um, one is called Translating Beauty, which is a documentary and myself and a number of other transgender women, including Gigi Gorgeous, who people may know mm. from the internet and YouTube, talk about the beauty and what it means uh, in our society in general, and particularly to women and how that's mm -hmm. as transgender women that has affected us to a certain extent. And then the other one is it's a, it's a, basically it's a web-based series uh, that was actually produced for out TV that is four sort of vignettes about um, trans patients and some of the struggles and they go through, but also more than anything else, celebrating them as, as individuals. There's also a documentary on CBC that I did a number of years ago, um, which was which talked about my, my own personal journey. So that's certainly one that, that is quite well received. Then I was also uh, appeared on Keeping Canada Alive, which was a CBC series about healthcare in Canada. I was also mm -hmm. in that series and I've done, you know, tons of media interviews. And um, mm -hmm. so if you Google me, it will be very, it would be virtually not impossible to find um, tons of information. <laughs> Yeah. And so if anyone is trying to Google, you can check out the show notes for how to spell her name. <laughs> and then good that point. way you, can, you yeah. can hit yeah. it for Karis is not, <laughs> you know, a, a common name in some ways. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I remember meeting you as, as, a, as a man. Uh, when I first entered residency, I thought you were awesome. And you always made fun of me. And it was it was pretty fun. Then I remember at the end of my first year in residency, I remember I was super post-call. I needed to turn something in to one of our men people. And, and I ran into you um, after your transition. And I think because I was super post-call, I must have come off as being like a little bit off. And you're like, are you okay? Do you, do you, <laughs> does this shock you? Uh, it's okay if it does. I'm like, no, I'm just super post-call right now. And I don't even know where I am. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. you know, I was just thrilled to, to, thrilled to see you uh, become the person that you've always probably been on the inside, on the outside. So. Well, I can certainly reassure you, your reaction, uh, in no way, it didn't, I mean, it was perfectly fine. I mean, I think <laughs> you get, I mean, you get lots of different reactions, especially back then when you, you know, transitioned years ago when things were a little bit different than they are today. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I had lots of people tell me I was ruining my life. I had lots of people tell me that, you know, things were going to go downhill for me you know someone who always likes to prove people wrong um yeah you have <laughs> who's yeah. to prove people wrong and that that actually wasn't going to be the case so um yeah from from my perspective it, it was a very ple pleasant interaction we had so I, I think you can wipe that one from your temporal lobe and, and, yeah, and since that time you've been nothing but amazingly supportive and and uh total yeah total support I, I can't th you know thank you enough for yeah. that we're, we're never at our best post call uh, <laughs> no, none of us are no very true anyway but yeah no I was I was so thrilled I was so excited because uh, I'll be honest with you I mean I I'd had other friends and colleagues who were um, transgendered but you were probably yeah. you've been my you've been my closest friend and colleague who has uh, had that story. Mm. in terms of the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was I think that being someone who is transgendered, you probably have some really interesting insights about what it means to be a woman in mm -hmm. 
in emergency medicine. So I thought mm-hmm. maybe we'd speak, spend a couple of minutes talking about that because I think that sure. the observations you've shared with me in the past have been quite revealing. And I thought maybe we could explore that a little bit because I think you've experienced being both a man and a woman now um, yep. as a practitioner in our field. And mm-hmm. I wanted to see if you could share some insights because I think uh, both genders could learn and those who are don't identify with either probably still will get better insights as to how we can be either better practitioners ourselves or what are some things that surprised you about after you transitioned, how people react to you? So I think um, that's a great question and there's a lot, a lot of different facets to that question. But I, I suppose I'll just initially share just some of my own personal observations, what it meant to me. So, you know, I'm one of those... Uh, what would be referred to as, you know, quote, unquote, again, passing transgender women, meaning that if you didn't know me before, you would unlikely that you'd have any idea that, you know, I wasn't, uh, I was born male. And so um, what that means is that, you know, you have what is called cisgender passing privilege, which allows, you know, the world to see you. And it's nice in many ways, because it means that you can just live your life without, you know, and choose sort of in a sense, be transgender when you want to be. But what that meant in medicine, I think certainly the most shocking, sort of the first initial shock part, shocking part to me was the way patients interacted with you in a very sort of interesting way. So, um, you know, from my perspective, I had never in my life as a medical doctor, male medical doctor, ever been referred to as a nurse. And so probably my first experience was just people asking me, I would talk to them. I felt in my usual, you know, emergency medicine, kick-ass authoritative way. And then at the very end of the interview, they'd say, oh, when when is the doctor coming? Or even more, oh, you're the doctor? You know, in that sort of query way. And so that was quite a a shock to me. And even more interesting is when there's a male nurse in the room, I'm sure every woman in emergency medicine can relate to this. I'm giggling. Yeah, looking at the male nurse, like, there's the person I need to be talking to. I don't know why this crazy woman on my left is yammering on because I really need to talk to this man about, you know, my health care. And I think that's something that, you know, although I, I knew it existed, just the extent to which it exists is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, it's really interesting, again, when you're walking, you know, just say you're walking, you know, between patients or something. And, you know, normally as a male physician, people just let you go through. But as a female physician, people often say, oh, where can I get a blanket? Oh, my husband needs to go to the bathroom. You know, and it's funny, you get asked all those questions, I think, a lot more frequently. So, again, it's just that idea that as a woman, you know, you're more nurturing, you're more approachable. And, and, and in, that, in that regard. So it is interesting. On the positive side, though. When you see really violent people and at our, at our uh, or people who are maybe, maybe high or psychotic, and at our hospital where I work, we have a large psychiatric population because we're a regional psychiatric referral center. And so I do find that the male patients aren't as confrontational in the sense they don't want to prove, you know, who's more of a man, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so you do get treated a little bit uh, more nicely in those situations. Mm-hmm. But again, it is interesting, you know, how the world works and just how people perceive you from that perspective. With regards to us as emergency practitioners, practitioners, we did publish an article in 2014 in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, and this is Ontario data, you know, looking at transgender population avoidance of emergency departments. And so there's lots of, you know, I'd say read the paper, but to summarize, basically transgender people avoid the emergency department for a whole bunch of reasons. But one is just misgendering people, using the wrong pronouns, using their dead name, which means, you know, using their male, you know, male or female name that they no longer use. And that's often called, called dead naming in the trans community. And then uh, also other, other things such as, you know, 
somebody comes in with a sore throat and people want to ask about whether or not they've had, you know, sex reassignment surgery, gender confirmation surgery, and you're just sort of, you know, it's totally irrelevant to the presentation and really shouldn't be discussed at all unless it's relevant to the presentation. And so there are, I think those kind of, well, I hate to use the term microaggressions, but those sort of overt aggressions are very, are very challenging for, for transgender people. And so one of the things we should think about if we do have a transgender patient, we're, even if we're sending them out of the departments, just say, for example, for imaging, a lot of my patients have had really bad experiences around imaging because especially if you're imaging, you know, certain parts of the body, or again, when you're referring to colleagues, you know, what, how are they going to treat that patient? So I think you just, those are things that as a hospital, we have to think about. And mm -hmm. as a, a group of docs, we need to think about because those negative effects aren't just, today, but they go on into the future, I meaning that people will be less likely to seek out healthcare because of the negative experience that they had in, in that single interaction. So I think those are things that we can that we can work on and we can still do a lot better on. I still hear those complaints today from my patients. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, things, I mean, things have gotten better. I don't want to make it sound like it's all doom and gloom because it isn't. Mm -hmm. but I, I think that, that those are some of the areas that we should think about more. I think more in general, um, we can always we can always, always, always do better to try to think about how we can improve any patient's experience, obviously, and especially those who are from groups that are traditionally marginalized. So whether that is some of our patients who are of a visible minority that don't speak English, that are mm -hmm. transgendered, who are vulnerable in some way, I think we, we have to. That, that's the mantra of, I think, what we've signed up to do in many ways and yep. the pandemic has just revealed so many so many vulnerabilities right in our system not as many apparently as in the u.s where some of our colleagues are really struggling um yeah. but you know it's not a coincidence that the pandemic was followed so quickly by a black lives matters movement it is not surprising that um we are starting to see where the structural problems that are in our systems propagate health inequities <laughs> yes exactly so i mean i think that that's something that gives me pause and that's why i think that you're such a hero in so many ways because you you have taken on you saw a gap and you filled it and to me that is truly what <laughs> every emerge shock you know like that we do have that training in some ways but i don't know that people have been as brave as you in so many ways but i, I do think that maybe this is where we can put a, you know, throw it on the gauntlet. Like I think most of us do need some kind of side gig. Uh, some people do research and education like I do. Others may want to take to doing other things. And so if there is a cause that you really believe in because of your personal experience, perhaps, or maybe because you've watched too many patients go through. to the residents, interns, even to yourself and colleagues before you start your shift is do one act of kindness today. You know, just do, you don't have to do it to every patient. You don't have to be a superstar, but maybe just once today, you know, do something that you normally wouldn't do, you know, would be maybe considered simple, but might also meet a need that is really unmet. So um, I think that's sort of, you know, the whole point about working with marginalized populations, which we do in the emergency department, whether we recognize it or not, that's who we work with very frequently, and that's who our frequent flyers often are, is that they have unmet health needs. And that's why they are where they are. And so, you know, we as emergency physicians, you know, certainly can advocate for those unmet health needs in a unique way. And so I think that's something I've, I, I think both you and I have thought about for many years, often in different ways. But I think, you know, I think it's a really important point that you're making. 
yeah, I mean, you know, if you can bring a little bit of the Disney magic, I guess, to the shift and just, uh, you know, like help people. Like, I mean, I, the, one of the anecdotes they tell in the, in, in the book is, you know, when they're training their customer service people and someone asks them like a, a slightly ridiculous question, like what time is the noon parade? You know, like you're like, um, but then instead of saying, well, at noon and then walk away, because that's what everyone in the world is like innately going to do, right? Um, they're, they're told to hear the request like, oh, you're waiting for the new, we're probably running a little bit late, not a big deal. Sometimes these things, they're not exactly at noon. You know what, while we're talking, why don't I take you to the best spot so that when you take photos with your family, the, the castle will be in the background or whatever. And so the idea is that like you take the idea you've addressed the concern and then you do something a little bit more kind. So I really love the idea of the kindness. Like, can we upsell, you know, like it's like in the emerge, can we upsell kindness? Can yeah. we actually just push the envelope a little bit and just say, can I help you a little bit more? And, and in yeah. that kind gesture, I think we feel better too. So I think it's, it's also okay. something that's slightly selfish is that yeah. when you can spread joy and you get a high five from your five-year-old patient because it gave them a popsicle, you can get the yeah. same thing when a family thanks you in an obituary because you yeah. were there to ease the pain of their loved one. Um, you can be the person that actually addresses someone's health concern. You can refer them and let them know about Quest. These are the little things that we can upsell and, and, and make, the, 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 make their world a little bit better. And I think that that's really why we're in healthcare, right? It's not just to save the sick and dying, but rather to make people's lives better when we can. There's a little bit of dopamine rush that you get that uh, maybe makes it uh, you know, good for you. Right? No, and, and I think you, know, you make a really valid point. And that's what I would ask about you know, when as healthcare providers, we, we, we see transgender patients, it's just to remember that, you know, they're actually, it's like the old story about the spider, right? The spider is way more terrified of you. Well, they're way more terrified of you than you are of them in a sense. When I use the word terrified, I think some people get a little bit frozen around names and pronouns because they, you know, they're, they're concerned they don't want to make a mistake. And so what I always say to practitioners is as long as your mistake is actually coming from a place of kindness and effort, then most transgender people, I mean, we have borderlines in the transgender community, but, but most transgender people will, you know, will, uh, will, will understand that. So I think, you know, asking, is this a name you prefer? You know, what pronoun should I use? Um, none of that is offensive in my opinion, because it shouldn't be, it actually shouldn't be assumed with anybody really, but, but even specifically with, with transgender people, if you just ask those simple questions, it's not mean that you're politically correct. It's not mean that, you know, that you're woke. It just means that you're being kind that's the way I think about it. And I think there's nothing wrong with being kind. And, you know, and even the old saying goes, you know, treat somebody how you'd like to be treated, like your mother always told you, right. And I think those are still, you know, motherhood values that we should think about and respect. And, and I think, you know, somebody like yourself, who does that type of education for people, and sometimes people don't see the value in that, because they think, oh, it's just more, you know, you know, education, you know, nonsense kind of thing. But it's, it's the point that you're making. And I think the point you're driving at is that these moments are actually what change the course of interactions, right. And so I, I really think that it's, it's actually, you know, we, we should start thinking a lot more about that. And I think, you know, somebody like yourself has really done a lot to change that, that, that way of thinking. So even from the transgender community, we certainly thank, thank you for this. We just all have to do our thing to, 
to make the world a better place. And yes, of course, like everybody kind of, you know, the, the can meds rolls and people roll their yeah. eyes a little bit when you talk about them. But I think that what it comes down to is just making our experiences well better. Cause do you really want to be fighting and slogging through? Do you want to feel like you're in a swamp of negativity right. every time you go to the emerge, right? Like whether you're a doctor, a nurse, an RT, a paramedic, that we deal with such hard things already. Right? Yep. Um, isn't it better when, you know, you can tell a couple of jokes and you can spread a little bit of kindness and, and then, and then the one person that yells at you, right? Because, because your day has been so good, doesn't feel like it's a weight on your yeah. shoulders. Yeah, exactly. I witnessed so much burnout, right? I mean, you've probably seen way more just because the, the, the difference in our career links so far. And I just see so many of my colleagues just get so burnt out. But it's because they've been swimming through a swamp and, you know, they haven't been remaking their world. And, and it can make your life look just that little bit better. And, and I think that for your own sanity and for your own mental health and your own wellness, that if, if nothing else, use those techniques to get you to that point so yeah. that you can be a better person, more empathetic. And then the kindness will come out of you just because. Yeah, no, I think the points you make are, are incredibly valid and, um, because what, you know, and I think it's natural human behavior. We hold on to the negative moments, right? We don't hold on to the positive moments in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I think like, like what you're saying is this needs to be a paradigm shift in how we mm -hmm. think about negative and positive moments. And, and again, it, it is really difficult to do that sometimes when you're in the middle of, of the swamp. But I think mm -hmm. one of the roles as colleagues, and I've always thought about that, particularly with nursing staff is not, and residents is, you know, it's, it's really easy to be negative it's really easy when you're when you're in a power position to treat you know to use that power mm. uh, but at the same time you know why, why not shift that and think you know here's how i how i interact with nurses here's how i interact with residents and make every moment something that's positive for them rather than a negative moment so i mean i you certainly are better educated on how to do that than, than myself but 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 again i think this all does tie back into my patient population that, that i take care of and yeah. I think, you know, we as, uh, as, as physicians are doing better. There's no question. I think I've, at St. Joe's, I've sort of almost turned a whole hospital into a transpositive experience. In fact, many of my patients prefer to go to St. Joe's for, for that reason and that reason mm -hmm. alone. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I think we could do it in every hospital. <laughs> I don't think it just needs to be where you have a transgender doctor, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, word gets out and then people are more used to it. That's probably part of it too, right? Like it's like mm -hmm. anything else. Uh, you folks at St. Joe's actually see a lot more psychiatric patients too, right? Yep. And so right. Yep. Um, yep. you have more training expertise, your security guards, everyone, the greeters, people know how to handle a code white much yep. better. And, yep. and just like anything else, game time experience is important. If you're at a center yep. that never sees transplants, cardiac transplants, right? Like UHN yep. is the only center around here that really handles cardiac transplants. Yep. We all are uncomfortable and that's pretty yep. natural. So I think you're that right. when you're a resident, uh, being able to, if you're, you know, a lot of our residents listen to the podcast, while you're at St. Joe's, you know, soak in some of that so you can bring it to the places that you're going to work eventually and, and think about how we can, can, we can design better experiences for our patients. So. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's been a great conversation. And finally, the epic conversation I wanted to have with you for MacMurray's podcast. So thanks again, Harris. Well, Teresa, thank, thank you for having me. And I think just putting this out on the air, I think will make a big difference um, for my community. So I really thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak. Thank you. Thank you. Hey y'all, welcome back to Carm's Corner. 
If you didn't listen to our October episode, I'm Ben, and I'm one of the Mac Emerge PGY1s. And I'm here in the CARMS corner with my co-host and Mac Emerge co-resident, Lauren Beals. Hey, folks. Last month, Ben and I went over what I can guarantee you we both procrastinated on for weeks, getting ready to start those CARMS applications. For us, that meant starting to write down stories that were inspiring from previous clerkship blocks and cleaning up those dusty CVs. Now, this month, we're going to take it one step further, using our prep work to actually get moving on those applications. And remember, CARMS is a marathon, not a sprint. We're going to be breaking down how we wished we approached our match year with the portal opening. Ooh, the portal. The portal. Portal aside, and first things first, it's time to get organized. When the portal opens November 2nd, all the programs from all the specialties across Canada will have their program descriptions available for you to peruse. Now, the program descriptions can be super overwhelming and take a lot of scrolling to get through, but they're also really important. From a practical standpoint, the program descriptions are the single best location to get all of the information you need about tailoring your application to the specific school and discipline. Does this program want a separate letter for each site? Check the program description. Does this program want at least two letters from Emerge Docs? Check the program description. Mandatory rural placements, access to Peds Emerge hospitals, whether you're doing one block of Gen Surge instead of two, all these nitty gritty details are going to be there in the program description. And if you are so inclined, we recommend busting out an Excel spreadsheet early to get those details all in one place and save the panic scrolling down the line. A spreadsheet is also super easy to share with friends who can then remind you that you actually need to write four different letters for UBC instead of the one you had prepared and sent to them last minute to review. Hypothetically, of course. Hypothetically. Now, after organizing those program descriptions and looking through the requirements of the various sites, you should also be able to get a pretty good sense of what the personal letters from each program should look like. And there's definitely going to be some overlap here. Programs want to hear about why you're a good fit for them and vice versa. But at the end of the day, everyone is looking for motivated, compassionate medical students with a genuine interest in Emerge. Which, if you're at the tail end of an Emerge podcast and stuck around long enough for the CARMS portion, I am positive that you check all of those boxes already. A solid tip is that when it comes down to writing multiple letters, Really try to capitalize on those common themes by coming up with clear answers to the questions you get asked over and over again. And then when it comes to crunch time, you can format those answers to each school's specific requirements. For example, if I asked Ben why he wanted to do a merge, and then I asked him to pull out his letters from last year, he would say, Dear Resident Selection Committee, Two key tenets of emergency medicine motivate me to choose the Royal College Emergency Medicine Program. Necessity and humility. Necessity. Everyone will be assessed and managed in the eMERGE. Cough to cardiac arrest. This necessity of care provided in the eMERGE requires a steadfast commitment to our patients. 
humility. Every specialty trains to handle their own emergencies. In Emerge, we see everyone's emergency and yet can't know everything. Humility inspires collaboration and teamwork. Humility means ownership of the process in unfamiliar situations with unknown outcomes. Beautiful, Ben. Just beautiful. And what Ben can do now is turn around and use those heartfelt answers as the foundation for each of his letters and build on them as needed. We recommend having answers to questions like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Where do you see yourself in 5, 10, even 20 years? And then filling in more specific details like why you would be a good fit for that site and your career goals that fit specifically with the program that you're applying to. My excessively verbose language aside, I think you really want to focus on just writing something, anything, especially early on in your personal letter writing. Staring at a blank Word doc after a long day of clerkship and trying to articulate why you want your dream job is really, really tough. A hundred and fifty percent. I felt so much pressure to use those 500 words to completely convince someone why I was a good pick, with everything from who I am as a person, to what are the things that I want to do, to what are the things that I've done already. It's a whole lot to jam into just a few paragraphs. But as long as you get something down, it is way easier to edit, edit, edit until you have a final product than always starting from scratch. And I promise you, it feels like it takes a long time but in the end, it'll all come together. And our last tip of the day, lean on your supports. Letter writing was probably the most emotionally challenging part of the written application for me because it's that perfect mix of time-consuming and difficult to do while also watching Netflix. Chat with the people who know you well and get their feedback early. They can help you to clarify your ideas and be really concise with your writing. It's daunting, but... You all have got this in the bag. You're going to do great. Absolutely. So on that note, let's call it on letters for this episode. Join us next time when we break down the other side of the coin, which includes that pesky question of asking for letters from staff. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back and merge out!